0: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here, and we're glad to see all of you here. Um, the, this is, the, of course, the weekend of our annual book sale, and that's why there's all these people, there's someone coming in with boxes of books, so that's good. Okay. We're delighted to uh, celebrate poetry of Cave Canem scholars. Uh, this is, I don't know how many years we've been doing this, but uh, this program is, was created and has been produced by Reginald Harris, who is now the Coordinator of Poetry in the Branches at the New York, at the, i was sorry to say the New York Public Library, but um, at Poets House in New York, and uh, Reggie was formerly with the Pratt for over 20 years and was my uh, partner in crime here in terms of public programs, including all of the poetry programs. And so uh, for me, it's a special honor to welcome him up to the podium. We're delighted to have him back in the building and in the PO room. Reggie.
1: It is just like old times. People are calling me <laughs> to do something, you know. Where's his book? Um thank you Judy. It's really um it's really amazing to be back. It's really weird. It's wonderful and odd at the same time to be to be back home. Um what uh Judy did not mention is that this uh program is part of a whole series of amazing events that <laughs> we uh that is that that are done here um at Pratt and I think that Um, Actually, as you go around the country or look around the country, you realize that this is probably one of the best series of events that you have here, um, back here at home, in Baltimore. And we're all very fortunate and very thankful for Judy. Um, Those events can be found in our wonderful compass. Um, And see, I'm just going back into the same old thing. And I want to uh, highlight a couple of other poetry events that are coming up um, in January and February a couple of uh, poetry and conversation uh, programs. Uh, the first one um, will be on the 11th, featuring my play cousin, Clorinda Harris. Um, and then in February, it will be um, Eshawn Hutchinson and Valzana Mort from uh, University of Baltimore. So uh, please be here for those. And tomorrow, if you happen to be in town, this should be very interesting. Tore will be here to talk about being post-black. I'll just let that sit there. Um, but today, uh, it is a very great pleasure to do another uh, Cave Canem reading. Cave Canem is an African-American poetry workshop and retreat um, that's officially what it is. In fact, it's a great big family. And so I always say that this is like a family reunion and in fact it is the crew from DC just arrived. and. Our crazy uncle Tony Medina is here, um, trying to find a seat. <laughs> it's this is all on tape, Tony, so we got you. No, um, and it's 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 really wonderful because I think that we manage somehow to uh, keep in touch with each other, even back before the days of Facebook, uh, when it was all nothing but email um, and occasional visits to keep in touch to keep. Um, The fire is burning to keep things going to bolster each other up to help each other out Um, And so in that way it is a family complete with you know a few feuds and like I said the you know the crazy uncle and You know somebody that says something wrong everybody gets upset, but then we all come back together for poetry So it's a great pleasure to be here Uh, today. We have four uh, magnificent people uh, to read for us and to talk Um, and this year we are featuring um, the winner of the 2010 Kavi Khanum Poetry Prize, Ian Haley Pollock uh, from Philadelphia. Um, Derek Weston Brown, who if you go down to D.C. at Busboys and Poets, you will see him there, um, with his new book, Wisdom Teeth. Uh, Khadija Queen, uh, her new book is uh, Black Peculiar. And Evie Shockley, um, whose new book is, speaking of being post-black, hers is The New Black. Something's going on. Hmm. Um, (laughs) Around here. Now, so um, I thought what I would uh, do is, now everyone's going to read for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, but I thought I would also ask them to quite possibly start um, with talking a little bit about uh, their books and... um, well, how do you make a book of poems okay I mean I mean I, you know you write poems, you got a bunch of poems, and then well, how do you know you got a book or do you know you have a book? How do you create a book um this is interesting in that the guys Ian and Derek, these are their first books, is that right um whereas uh Khadija and Evie this is let's see two second one for Khadija. and Evie this is your second poetry book, but then yeah, full-length poetry book, and then you've got a chapbook, and you've got this um, nonfiction books, book, which we are all looking forward to renegade poetics, black aesthetics, and formal innovation in African-American poetry. <gasps> That's a mouthful, but it's going to be great, I know. So she's just incredibly prolific. It makes us all feel really bad. But anyway, so um, could you please, as you come up, um, before you read or during your reading, if you could talk about what is it like to have a first book? What is it like to win a prize? And how do you create not only your first book, but your subsequent books? What do you do? How do you put these things together? Because I think people would be interested in in that question as well in addition to just the usual how you write. So, um, and then we will also have time for questions. Uh, for all our poets afterwards um, as Judy mentioned um, the book sale is outside So don't think if you have a box you can just sort of sweep everything off and put it in there And we're going to get you away with three dollars um, This is the Poe room not only for Edgar Allen, but also for poetry and poets are Poe So we do have books for sale which the authors will be very happy to sign so let us start I will, st- I will keep my mouth shut uh, Derek if you would please Derek Weston Brown
2: Hey, it's good to be here, thank you uh, Reginald, thank you, thank you Enoch Pratt Library, um, good to see y'all coffee economy folks, good to see familiar faces, happy faces. Um, okay, first question, what, I guess what is it like to to have a first book out? It's, it's an interesting feeling every day. Um, I think my book came out in April, but it was almost a nine-month process with us putting it together with the publisher and talking about it and coming up with ideas on, you know, where i'm where I'm gonna read, how is it gonna look, all those different things, so I always say it's like my this is like my my first child in a sense, you know, so I'm just happy that it's here. I don't care you know what sex it is, I'm just glad it's here, and it's healthy <laughs> and it's great, you know that's how most parents would be boy or girl doesn't matter. I'm just happy that you're here and you're healthy and you're doing your thing um the process for putting the the i guess the process for putting the book together was just uh This is the combination, I say, of of living in two places. Part of this book is North Carolina, and part of this book is the D.C. area. And uh, the parts that are North Carolina are um, the personal poems, and then the majority of the poems that deal with, like, societal things and race and gentrification. That's all D.C. D.C. is where I grew up. I say to become like an actual adult and a person and actually to grow up as a writer and to find out what it means to workshop and connect with people. So this is the book of, uh, of a beginning, but of a growth. So wisdom teeth is a metaphor for just growth um, with wisdom teeth. It's inevitable that there's going to be some pain if you don't get rid of those wisdom teeth. And also within life, um, there's going to be some movement whether you want it or not. And how are you going to adjust? So that's the metaphor. We'll start with the first poem, and it's for writers. It's called Hourglass Flow. To write all night long, the hourglass is still slow, flow from hellborn to free power like Wilco, MF Doom. Blame comfort, blame a city of coffee houses and lounges, blame ego and pride and all that clever stuff, blame self. Blame the crafty inner only child and his addiction to pleasing and head pats. Blame the anxious inner prospector and gold fever. Blame voice. Blame that voice that wants to sound like a poet, but not sound like a poet, wanting to sound like a poet. Blame distractions, but again, that brings it all back to self, doesn't it? Blame ritual. Blame fear of failure. Blame the voice in your head that doesn't like you. Blame competition. Blame loathing and book deal envy. Blame the workshop in your head. Blame expectations the size of a pig iron plow. Blame clock hands and clock faces. Blame stuck keys and humming hard drives. Blame that lost hour of slumber. Blame unreadable REM sleep scribble. Then, Remember the ritual of trying, falling, the get up and dust off, the look to see if anyone is watching. Remember each day is a draft. Remember possibility, process, remember place, remember voice, patience, remember to forgive yourself, right? To start, I'm not used to this library thing because you know, sometimes you finish a your poem, be like, Yeah, clap! So it's all good. I was in Chicago um, this past week doing, I guess, the traveling poet writer thing. So that was new for me going to different places and always experiencing folks and just their experiences and stuff. Um, so, this is a DC poem, it's a true story. It took place in a uh, bookstore, uh, the name will not be revealed to protect those who worked in the bookstore, and uh, it's A dialogue poem. It's called Mother to Son. True story. Boy, I'm trying to buy you these books. Your grandma's trying to buy you these books as a gift for free. And you're going to cry? Because we won't get you the book you want? Mom, you see this? Mm Mm-hmm. Boy, you better stop crying and whining. I didn't raise you to be suburban. Now dry it up. True story. True story. True story. You know, and it's interesting because the the folks that it's based on, I actually, you know, we developed a rapport when I was working in the bookstore. So they have a copy of the book, and I showed them the poem. And, like, the, I remember the mom was reading it, and she was like, does that sound like me? Does that really sound like me? And the son was like, oh, that's you. That's <laughs> you. And he was much younger than but he's like, yeah, that, that is you. That does sound like me, doesn't it? So I signed a copy of the book, so they have it. So it's like they're, they're immortalized. All right, um, since uh, Reginald talked about the D.C. contingent, um, I'd have to say thank you to, to U Street and just DC, and I gotta go all the way back to whether it's Soul Brothers Pizza or, or, or Mangoes or, or even back to 8 Rock. Some of the stuff I wasn't there for, but there are a lot of poets that kind of hit me to the, to the lineage when I got here and workshop with them. So this is called Kitchen Gods. This is for a meeting of the DC crew. After the poet's photo by Mignonette E. Dooley, uh, Brandon Johnson's wife, we lean on kitchen countertops like pool sticks swirling spirits in plastic cups mouths full of laughter as we blow the dust off old stories like records that hadn't seen a turntable in some time we resuscitate the ghosts of old lovers angry indifferent or otherwise don't miss a beat as we solo and lasso loop words finish each other's sentences scarf down bowls of red beans rice Chasing with rum that warms the gullet, makes gut chuckles flow easy. We hold our sides, feign kidney aches, kick out legs as memory plays marionette. We lean cool, shoulder to shoulder like blue-black ridge mountain ranges. Our hands map out a woman's dimensions, mold hips out of thin air, recreating her walk and arching calves. We connect the dots that bring hearsay to heretofore, hereafter, truth, truth. Swear to God, cosign. My man's right here, he'll verify. We shoo the little ones out of the kitchen with gentle hands, pausing when the language gets a little cerulean with G-dams and G-lords. We dap. Bump fists so hard, rings skip sparks and concur with a meeting of plastic cup rims. We a small kitchen crew, salt and pepper gray mixed with a symbols, skin the color of smoked chestnut smelling like our fathers, our mother's milk, distant memories on our breath. We groan, we hop and John, lavender, sage, a lone hand slapping go-go on skins. We earmen, we ate deep, standing on kitchen towel, a blood knot of the quick-tongued with quicker pens, 202-301-240, poets. So that's for DC. Thank y'all, thank you. All thank you I tsh, 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 real quick, real quick. Um, For anyone who's ever dated somebody and um, after it ended and you saw him on the street and you were like, <laughs> so this poem, the title is Poem After Running Into You on the Street After Not Seeing You for a While. Seeing you after all this time reveals to me two things. One, your flame has diminished considerably.
1: <laughs> two,
2: I'm a different moth now. Yeah. So there we go. Do, 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 do. I'm not bitter. It's all good. All right. um, has got ten minutes, so I'm gonna try to make do like two more. Two hours a time, I wasn't time again, check my clock. All right, so um this is from my father um cornelius eddie once said to someone who asked him about um if you ever what does it mean to write a poem about a parent or somebody in your life that isn't too favorable um should you not do it if it's not going to be favorable and he said well do you think that your writing is important said and most of us answered yes yeah. do you think your subject matter is important to be written about we said yeah he said well then probably the one thing you can do to really Hurt that person who if that if you decide not to write about it is the fact if you don't write about them that means you're not acknowledging that they exist anywhere in your work so if you really want to take a shot you don't write about them at all but this is about my father he is a portion of my my life and is cool so and I've memorized this one so this is called legacy my father's vocabulary is quite extensive but he still can't find the words for I love you nor the synonyms, the acronyms, abbreviations. I guess this is why I am a poet. I've inherited the words lost to his dictionary. I am the latest volume, updated. I am the New Testament. That's for my dad. All Right, and to close it out, I'll keep it short. Um, I enjoy um, relationship poems because they're really great and reading through this book is just also interesting because it's kind of like a you could kind of follow it and be like oh that's what he was going through at that time so um, this poem very short is called uh, what's after Patricia Smith's what it's like to be a black girl for those who aren't this title is what it's like to date in DC for those who haven't <laughs> after Patricia Smith it's like having a mouthful of prayer when all you're looking for is that one, amen. That's it. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Fantastic, thank you. Thank you for kicking us off. Okay, there's your bar. You gotta, <laughs> we said it high at Comic-Con, we said it high. I think, I, I will say one thing, you know, I think that we all sort of feel this, and I'm an old head, actually, I was there. I was at the monastery, you young people, you don't remember the monastery now. But, um, you know, all of us are um, intimidated by the rest of the family, it's sort of like, oh my God, they're writing so well, I'm, I'm not doing anything, so. But in any case, someone else who's also doing incredible work, um, the, uh, the Queen of Jersey City by what, what? Tennessee first, and then various meanderings, but now the Queen of Jersey City, ladies and gentlemen, Evie Shockley.
3: Yay, thank you all, thank you all. Thank you, Derek. It's good to hear those poems after seeing them on the page mostly. Um, um, about writing books. What, I still don't know anything about it. That's, that's what I have come to the conclusion of. The first book was um, one of those books like Reggie mentioned, I think, um, that you're writing poems, you're writing poems, and um, one day someone asks you if you have a manuscript and you say mm-hmm. yes and go home and put that together. Um, <laughs> and there's a lot of weeding Um, and pruning um, going on in the process. Um, If there's anything I could say about the difference between a first book and a second book, it's usually that the second book takes a lot less time. Not because the writing individual poems takes less time, but because you've already reached a place where you know something about who you are as a poet. And so... Um, you, you cut out all that process of, of getting to the place you want to begin, um, to begin from. So um, this second book um, is one that I think of as a kind of a meditation on the meaning of race in um, the U.S., um, particularly blackness, but not just blackness, because race uh, is a part of all of our lives. Um, it's a book that I started thinking about as a book. I had been, I had published uh, Half Red Sea and was writing poems, um, but began to realize that what was going to be important for many of the, the things that I, was, I would be writing at that point and uh, for a little while was um, an awareness I was beginning to have of how not just how different people experience race differently, but how that functions often generationally. I was um, teaching college and confronting young um, African-American students uh, in particular who I expected to think you know, the way I did about race and who had very different kinds of ideas um, sometimes that gave me you know after getting kind of angry with them (laughs) uh, for a while i remembered or realized that i have also very different ideas about race than my mother has and um, you know for her to have grown up in jim crow she has a different experience than someone who literally was in the first year of desegregation in the the southern town where i grew up nashville um and let me tell you, it was not 1954. <laughs> um, and, um, and how could I expect it to be different for kids whose sort of first presidential vote went for Barack Obama? Um, so hopefully you'll hear some of that in the poems I'm gonna read, um, but they won't all necessarily focus um, specifically on those, those themes. Um, I'll start with the, the poem that opens the book, like Derek, follow that model. It's called my last modernist poem number four or re-rebirth of a nation a clean-cut man brings a brown blackness to a dream carved unprecedented place some see in this the end of race like the end of a race that begins with a gun a finished line we might finally limp across for others This miracle marks an end like year's end, the kind that whips around again and again, an end that is chilling with a lethal spring coiled in the snow. Ask Lazarus about miracles. The hard part comes afterwards. He stepped into the reconstruction of his life, knowing what would come, but not how. Um... This next poem, I, I had been going to read um, something else and I realized, you know, I am in Maryland and this is the home state of Frederick Douglass and therefore I need to read my Frederick Douglass poem or one of the two actually Frederick Douglass poems I have in this book, he's so fascinating to me. Um, so this, um, this poem is called From the Lost Letters of Frederick Douglass and I imagine a letter that was um, never sent to his uh, daughter, Rosetta. June 5th, 1892. Dear daughter, can you be 53 this month? I still look for you to peek around my door as if you'd discovered a toy you thought gone for good, ready at my smile to run up and press your fist into my broken palm but your own girls have outgrown such games and I cannot pilfer back time I spent pursuing freedom fair to you to your brothers your mother hardly but what other choice did I have what sham what shabby love could I offer you so long as Thomas Auld held the law over my head and when the personal threat was ended whose eyes could mine enter without shame if turning toward my wife and children meant turning my back. Your mother's eyes stare out at me through yours of late. I think You think I didn't love her, that my quick remarriage makes a Gertrude of me a corseted hamlet of you. You're as wrong as you are lucky. Had Anna Murray had your education as a girl, my love for her would have been as passionate as it was grateful. But she died illiterate when I had risked my life to master language. The pleasures of book and pen retain the thrill of danger even now, and you may understand why Ottilie assing come into our house to translate me into German could command so many hours, years of my time, or as you would likely say, of your mother's time. Forgive me, Rosetta, for broaching such indelicate subjects. But as my eldest child and only living daughter, I want you to feel certain that Helen became the new Mrs. Douglas because of what we shared in sheaves of my papers. Let no one persuade you, I coveted her skin. I am not proud of how I husbanded your mother all those years, but marriage too is a peculiar institution. I could not have stayed so unequally yoked so long without a kind of freedom in it. Anna accepted this and I don't have to tell you that her lot was better and she happier than if she'd squatted with some other man in a mutual ignorance. Perhaps I will post rather than burn this letter this time. I've written it so often, right down to these closing lines in which I beg you to be kinder, much kinder to your stepmother. You two are of an age to be sisters and of like temperament. Under other circumstances, you might have found friendship in each other. With regards to your husband, I am, as ever, your loving father, Frederick Douglass. You know, people who you admire so much can just have blind spots. Um, I don't know how many of you um, know the story um the, the the history, the biography of Stanley Tookie Williams. Anybody? A few people? He was um one of the founders of the gang called the Crips out in LA and uh spent many years on death row for the murders of at least two multiple murders um committed when he was a young man involved in that gang activity. Um, what what we learned um, as the date of his execution approached and amidst the protests and uh, petitions to try to stop that execution was that he spent most of the years that he was on death row writing um, books for children about peace, um, hoping to counter um, some of the effects of the acts that he took as a young man. Um, This is a poem that comes out of wondering what our prison system is for. Is it simply punishment or does rehabilitation have some kind of a role? Um, A sonnet for Stanley Tookie Williams. And the epigraph is from Bob Marley. Won't you help to sing these songs of freedom? Cause all I ever have, redemption songs. All month, this country has careened toward cold and winter celebrations. What a star announced a birth, and then a chance to fold a year away, pull one fresh from the drawer. If not clean, well, unworn. In just a few months arrives the ice-hot day of the dead come back to life. Time then to ask how new and re-beginnings differ. Mary bled for the December miracle, as someone must, did you imagine sacrifice as you called the crypts to life? Did they come, those young bloods, at the crackling of your voice, like Lazarus to Christ? Vigilant night, on the road to San Quentin, candlelight. Um, I have uh, three poems that I'd like to read um, before sitting down. I hope that's not gonna take me too far over, over time. Um, this next one is uh, is a poem that's going to test your memory of um, fairy tales and children's stories. It's called "Never After," and uh, the epigraph comes from Harriet Mullen. Was she enchanted or drugged? <coughs> Once upon a time, she went to a magical club on Rush Street in Chicago, Illinois. She went with her girl, who went to pick up men, white men. Her girl was a cinder Ella, a goddaughter, wore the right shoes, a red cape with a hood. Her girl knew a prince from a toad and how to get results, wolf whistles. She went to chaperone. She was the designated driver, especially when she drove a home alone. She loved to watch the sun rise over the water as she headed north on Lakeshore Drive. She called her girl in the afternoon after to see how it went, to hear what went down, who went down, on whom, breakfast downtown in some cool cafe, a ride home with the white knight in the morning in his imported European steed, horsepower. She wasn't jealous. She had a man, a black man. She only wished she was invited to dance more at the club. She wasn't the black enough or white enough to catch the white guy's eyes. She didn't look like the type, too. She nursed her amaretto sour till it was mostly melt. She was the designated driver, the chaperone, the colored girl whose skirt was not short enough or tight enough, too. One night, her man was off from his job parking steeds, imported European steeds, for tips, for tuition. He could take her out. Where? The magical club downtown on Rush Street, of course. She would not be a chaperone. She would be a princess. She would dance and dance with her man. She would get down on the floor. At the door, there was a problem, out of state IDs. Her ID was from the same state it always had been, She was from out of state. Her girl was from out of state. Her man was from out of state. They were in college. They were seniors. They were legal. She made her case. She stood her ground. She put her foot down on the one, on the two. They got in, paid the price, got their hands stamped. However, there was a pee beneath the dance floor. The clock kept striking midnight. She could not spin the straw into gold. She couldn't let down her hair. They knew it spelled trouble, but they decided to have one drink and leave. They had a point to make, paid the price, drank the drinks. She ordered an amaretto sour. They brought her a stepmother's special, a red delicious. They made their point, but, and she pricked her finger on it. She began to fall down. She could hardly stand it charming. Her man's kiss did not revive her, make it go away. He carried her off into the set sun, off the set, up. She slept it off. They shrugged it off. They learned what they already knew. They knew better. They lived to tell the scary tale. Um, two more that are a little shorter. Improperty behavior. It's a guzzle for those who care about these things. Racial profiling, the idea that there's no legitimate reason for driving while black. Take Sean Bell. He got 50 bullets pumped into his car for driving while black. Homeownership is also improper behavior in Cambridge and beyond. Ask Henry Louis Gates, arrested in his own home for thriving while black. Seemed like the Obama celebratory fist bump might derail his campaign. Now they know they should avoid things like high-fiving while black. Inner-city hoops are, of course, appropriate, unlike swimming in the suburbs. The Creative Steps Day Camp kids were booted from a pool for diving while black. Even b-ball can fall out of bounds if the finals pitch you against a whiter team. The Rutgers women's players were slammed on the air for striving while black. Post-Katrina New Orleans is open to anyone with the money to rebuild, except the ninth ward, which they are discouraged from reviving while black. It's all about belonging. Even now, who belongs where is often based on who belonged to whom. Sometimes I wonder how I get away with living while black. Thank you, and a short poem to close. Um, We've heard a little bit today about um, being post-black. This poem is called Post-White. My country, tears of thee, sparkling on a stiff gray bow, tied against cognitive dissonance, getting ahead, holding it together, keeping it really warm, sweet land of basketball, Barbecue, sweet potato pie and Cadillac, Liberty-crowned lady with a torch in her voice. Off the I spring, hopeful at last. My love, you've come a long way, baby, on the stony road we trod, through this land where my fathers and mothers died, on poplars, in quarters, under the lash, and over the objections of the vocal fuse, singing, freedom. Oh, freedom over me, and the authors of declarations of independence finally appointed to positions of authority. Phyllis Wheatley with pen in hand and internationally recognized skill in diplomacy, Secretary of State. Frederick Douglass, who won't dread Scott's claim of citizenship, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Harriet Jacobs, master strategist. Speaker of the House, music moving mountains. I'd let freedom ring with the harmonies of liberty. A work song, hold it steady right there while I hit it. Reckon you ought to get it. A tisket, a tasket. We drop kick that old basket. Mama's got a brand new bag. And say it plain. From that day forward, we were all hip hop. You don't stop being American.
1: Thank you so much, Evie. Wonderful. And now, Khadijah Queen. Uh, I mentioned that we have her second book, Black Peculiar. Her first book was, or is, sorry, still, Conduit. Um, and she has been published in a number of journals and one of the anthologies with one of those great titles, Best American Non Required Reading. I'm jealous. Ladies and gentlemen, Khadijah Queen.
4: Thank you, Reggie, and thank you, Judy, and um, thank you, everybody, for coming. Hi, Tina. Okay, so first starting um, with how do you write a book? Well, my first one, I'm still sort of writing. It didn't come out. It's still, I think it may come out like before I die or something, because it's all (laughs) like personal family poems. Um, And then the second one started when I was in grad school, and that one just, it sort of flowed out over the course of about a year, and I just hooked on to an idea. I started, I was researching women in resistance in uh, pre-colonial Mexico, and sort of navigating that along with interpersonal relationships, and the status of women, and um, travel, and it, it came into to that book. And then the third, or the second book, Black like peculiar. I was in art school, and I was the only black person in the entire school, <laughs> the entire program, and I just found it really a peculiar experience, and had to write about it. And it it sort it just came out in three months. I just I sat down and wrote it. That's that's pretty much how it happened. Um, so it's different each time, and I think that for a lot of us, it, it may be the same. And the main thing is to listen to what comes to you and be faithful to that. Um, I'll start with an early poem. It's called Thickest Pins. And I grew up in a family of women, so you should probably know that. As kids, I swear, we lived for hairpins, bobby pins. Sometimes we kept them in our pockets. We had little combs and endlessly styled our hair, Barbie's hair. Sometimes the pens ended in strange configurations, semi-paper clips, little Barbie knives, the rounded tips bitten off and made razors. Sometimes Barbie got so mad at Kent, you'd have to cut him. <laughs> of course, we didn't call them by those names. Our Barbies were mahogany, June blackout, badass, Grandma Cecil now the withering games between us all but one a mother what we offer each other is more than comfort we expect a wounding we marvel at the needle of love armed with those pins we found plenty to do it's not important what we found we were gifted so i'll read a few um, selections from distance as the root of olive trees um, in conduit. Uh, And it's a little, y'all might have to just roll with me on this one. 522 AM, suffer your cherished distance wound like cord. You'll not give yourself away. You hear people on the streets braced for loss, and inside us another frozen universe is cracking. 424 PM, there is an endlessness guarding the wrecked shell of your body. The strings of your muscles thrum a song tattooed in your inky throat, an unexpected sequence like abandonment spreading into the shadow of a cheekbone, the gut of a lock. Be glad that more than once you can break. Absence, a way to make an overturned bowl of the sky. So these are a little rowdier, because I was angry. And um, yeah, okay, so these are analogies and letters, and I was reading a little bit of Alexander Pope and like some of the satire. (coughs) So that's a little, that's in here as well, but uh, I was just trying to make sense of the experience of being black and the absurdity of racism. It's really kind of bizarre and when you think about how deeply it's embedded in our cultural institutions, because it doesn't make any sense, like whatsoever. Um, so this is Black Peculiar Energy Complex. Marked upon is to relational dark as diabetic is to aesthetics. Dear puppets, I want to make you say things I cannot, but I don't want your mouths to move. Stitched shut is to slipshod as material is to immovable. Dear buttons, I cannot sew you on properly without my favorite needle. Wait just a moment while I dig it out. Dysphoria is to metaphysical toilets as burned tendons are to drunken interest. Dear master, I am running away from you now. Alluring figures are to Deridian, abundance is to interference. Dear invincible reference point, let's say we take a certain counterpoint out of the picture. The moment of strangulation, perhaps. If the peculiar energy becomes complex, just call it black. Objectified is to observed as karma is to evolutionary stagnation. Dear interference, I have a habit of sitting too close to the television. When I look, I'm not really looking. I eat the terrible stories. Destined appendix is to simultaneous orchestra as opposition is to unknown. Dear anxiety, I named my puppy after you not thinking he had any chance of being run over. Defenseless is to sutra, as Bruce Lee proverb is to enclosed environment. Dear hermit, you scoffed at my rainbow. Fuck you. (laughs) Determination is to perpetual as leveling is to potentiality. Dear future mistakes, please stop laughing. Okay, this is from um, the long section called Animus. Um, It's the first one I wrote out of the series. I think Evie might remember this poem because I wrote it at Squaw Valley. Mostly to uncover the reality of my destructive hunger. He gave me nothing to eat but photographs of other people eating meat. Cooked and raw, half gone and about to be sliced. In the photographs, the people looked relaxed and not very hungry. But first, they were killing the animals with their careful machines. This was before clumsy hands came to the collective mauling and before the children danced carefully in their ironed clothes at their little table. It all looked delicious. The shiny weapons and thick spats of flesh and slavering mouths and families. He did this in order, in order that I might see how feeding is done. Okay. Oh, yes, let's do this one. Okay. Speaking of post-black, this is mostly to uncover the reality of the myth of post-blackness. He left me wounded in a room full of artists and none of them had black eyes. One had brown eyes, but she wouldn't speak up. She looked at me forgivingly, paralyzed. Some of them saw me, but not really. One did, but he only wanted to fuck. If only I could stop bleeding. His eyes were as open blue as sky, and I could go, but I know there would be an ending I didn't choose. My brain moved faster and faster. They saw me tremble and not so much as a white tissue. I could kneel down and pry at the floorboards with a scream and broken fingers, and they would just keep talking like I was a ghost or a shadow. Then go to the beer garden and chug cheap pints, then take long walks in the woods conversing about the nature of art and objective disappearance. Then spend a year painting in Uzbekistan wearing thin shirts with holes in them and never new new shoes. They could chew gum loud and starve or fish and get fat and take shitty photographs above urban nightlife. This is how it begins and happens and ends, drawing right past me as if I am the one keeping still. And the last piece I'll read is just one line from a play uh, in verse that has like 50 something object characters and concept characters. Uh, So scene three from act one has the chakra balancer who sits cross-legged in a meditation posture and takes several deep breaths and says, transcend feet and your race will fall off. (laughs) Thank you, guys.
1: Thank you so much, Khadijah, beautiful. And now direct from Philly, um, and at the almost at the end of his book tour, congratulations! A book tour—that's cool—is Ian Haley Pollock the winner of the 2010 Kavikanum Prize uh, for "Spit Back a Boy." So go ahead, and I'll I'll just sort of extemporize while, while while yes yes while while you swallow. I don't want you to come up here and choke. But anyway, um, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Thank you for coming down, Ian.
5: Thank you to Reginald and Judy and the Pratt for having all of us. And it's wonderful to see so many familiar faces out there today. And thank you to all of you for coming. Um, I don't think I have a lot of insight into the book publishing process. I felt like I got to a point where I could write some individual poems that were working. But in terms of putting them together in a manuscript form, that was one of the harder parts of the process for me. And um, not many people seem to be able to, tell me, give me any good advice. The best advice I heard was don't put a sex death, uh, a sex poem and a death poem back to back. So, (laughs) that's about all the advice I have. Um, But then I applied to several contests. This is actually my third time applying to the Cave Canem um, contest. So those of you who send things out and get rejected a lot, take heart, you know. Um, uh, But I was sort of glad in the end to be rejected because it made me work harder, it made me cut out um, what ultimately I think were some of the weaker poems and um, made me refine some of of the poems. So, um, you know, through rejection comes some success, I guess. Sorry. Um, The first poem I'm going to read is Rattla Can't Hold Me. And that line, which is repeated in the poem, is taken from a convict song recorded in Texas in the 1960s. And Rattler was the dog that would have been used to uh, intimidate the men who were working and sort of keep them from, from running away. Ratla can't hold me. Day levels to dusk, and they remind us of rolled down windows, night breezing through, of driving nowhere, mileposts like drifting sparks along the darkened shoulder. Of R&B hooks they emptied from their lungs like the rotting sweet of old mess from a vase. We will lose them. And all our sadness will be old Arkansas, rural and misspoken, its roads smudged by the fog's blue prints, its pine board shacks daubed with mud to keep out mosquitoes and the cold. The kitchens and porches where we aren't will cease to exist. We'll miss rain and autumn dousing the fire of the leaves wind writhing like a water moccasin. Like convicts, we'll sing, Radla Cain, hold me! Radla Cain, hold me! While outside the fence, poplars, stripped by gypsy moths, stand bare. I usually prepare people for my singing, so I'm sorry that I I, I didn't do that for you guys. Um, Just by way of uh, background, my father is white and British, and my mother is black and American. And my dad comes from a town in the northwest of England called Lancaster. Uh, and he was doing some some family research, and I think he was surprised, um, although maybe none of us should have been, that Lancaster, which is on the coast, was the fourth uh, largest port of birth for slave ships, and that you know caused sort of a family conundrum when it when it came to light. Port of origin, Lancaster. A group of Igbo linked arms and walked off Jamaica into the Caribbean, Cannibal Sea. Behind them, the wind susu and arrows of bourbon cane, overpowering nectar of boiling houses, tang of iron in door hinges and horse bits, in manacles and flintlocks. When salt swallowed breath, Igbo souls leapt from the water as great sea eagles. Talons gripped black bodies as a she-bear lifts her cub by the scruff. Wings throbbed air until all passed back to Igbo land. I knew this. Knew before I heard the stories, read the books. Knew from the whispering of my black mother's blood into my marrow. Knew also the mocking tap of rain on the hull christened in my white father's city. Knew how the ship lolled and pitched. How timbers creaked. Creaked and creaked. All night creaked. All day that was night, creaked. Over dull slap of waves on brine-soaked wood, creaked. Over groans from hunger, foul air, and flux, and lost sisters, creaked. Creaked and creaked in the hollow chamber of a boy's ear. Creaked, timbers creaked. Um, So I read the next poem. Uh, On the air and on the NPR station in in Philly, and the uh, the day before they had been fined by the FCC, um, because as the uh, producer told me, a cocksucker got through, and it took me I I was it took me a second to understand that someone had said that word on the air and not like someone hadn't like rushed. um, So they asked me to to change the poem. They asked me to to cut a couple words, or, you know, change a couple words, but um, nigga is in the poem, and they didn't ask me to change it. So I ended up saying, you know, giving a long speech, and now every time I read it, I I, I sort of find it necessary to say it's it's not a word that I use lightly in a poem. I understand there's a history and a a violence to the word, but I sort of, you know, I mean, it put me in an awkward position, I guess, that they didn't ask me. Oya in Old City. Old City is the oldest, strangely enough, is the oldest part of Philadelphia. Oya in Old City. I ain't nigga Mary, shrieks the red-boned woman, wearing two coats and sitting on a bench along the parkway when I mumble, how are you, at her. On the trip back from Reading Market, she's leaning against the fence to a baseball diamond at Von Koln and raving, don't let them fool you, we ain't win the Civil War, we still fighting that shit. Watching her, I slip again into the summer after second grade when my mother drove me, her half-breed son, into Philadelphia to see the Liberty Bell and the black faces she worried were too few in our dairy town, where most color was her kin. Draggling over cobblestones shadowed by the spires of Independence Hall, a a roomy-eyed bag lady, midnight black, narrow shoulders widening to a paunch, towed a trash-packed handcart that cluttered with each lopsided roll. I stared at her, her three-whiskered mole, until she seemed one of the goddesses, bare-breasted and round-bellied, squatting along my mother's bureau. I think now I enjoyed her strangeness, her possible divinity, but was terrified, too, that she had the means under her red shawl or in the billow of plastic bags jouncing in her cart to destroy a boy like me. The woman caught me gawking. She curled her face to ugly, jabbed out her tongue, and taunted me in a drawl thick with self. Take a motherfucking picture, ain't you never seen a nigga? I flung my almost white self into my mother's embrace. That brown embrace I hoped would swallow me whole and spit back a boy four shades darker while the woman chuntered away, her cart rattling over cobbles worn by centuries of traffic. Um, so I grew up in the... Uh, early nineties, just the golden age of the house party movies. So I, uh, I modeled my haircut. It was a high top fade modeled after kid and play or kid. Um, But I feel like my fade was unique because it was the only one uh, cut by a white dude from England. this, This is for my dad. Affection. One Friday a month, my father pulled clippers, walls from a worn shoe box to tighten my fade before the school dance. The cut was accomplished with an economy of words and movement. I'd sit quietly under his hand, listening to the electric hum of the walls while his precise strokes sent flurries of curls to the bathroom floor, and his light touch on my chin rotated the angle of my head left or right, up or down. When he bent the tops of my ears flat to shave behind them, I'd start scraping fingernails against my thighs, the full power of gravity keeping me in the red folding chair until a gruff, how's it look? And I'd shoot up to preen from the mirror and inspect. Once satisfied, I'd stamp up to my room to dress for the night, while downstairs, my father swept four four weeks' worth of hair from the floor tiles, the whisk of corn broom over linoleum sounding softly as the cradle song that a child heavy with sleep only half hears. Beth David Cemetery, Long Island. I'm the only man standing by the open grave without a yarmulke, with dreadlocks spilling onto the lapels of my suit jacket. Next to me, Naomi stares at her grandfather's coffin. Under the distant roar of jets arcing over the sound, three workers speak Caribbean Spanish, hushed and rapid, and smoke while they wait to fill the grave, their backs to us, and the wind. On headstones nearby, mourners have set rocks, a sign of the permanence of their loss and of the earth. And families have hedged some plots with evergreens to keep other funerals from trampling their dead. Cousin Seymour, a slight devout man, breaks our silence. We should be the ones to bury Jack, not them. And Naomi's father takes up a shovel and steps toward his father's grave. I back away onto a gravel path, bristling to think that them is the three grave diggers, that them is us, dark people. But while the men and boys passing the shovels between them cast dirt onto the coffin, and the grave begins to fill with the smack and roll of dirt clods on the casket lid, while Will, a great-grandson, struggles to balance a load of soil on a shovel blade, I recognize that Seymour meant them who are not us, our family, them not fused with us by life and faith, who do not suffer now when we have cause to suffer. And as our family leaves for the reception and the days of sitting Shiva, I know that when I die, our children, our grandchildren, they will grieve for me with shovels in their hands. Uh, a couple years ago, my, I teach middle school and my school sent me to a, an education conference in New Orleans. And as Part of that conference, um, we did some community service work with Habitat for Humanity in the Ninth Ward um, in an area called Musician's Village, which was sort of designed to bring musicians back to New Orleans. Um, And I had known the city a little I had been to Jazz Fest a couple times and knew knew the city somewhat. So uh, I knew it enough to be shocked by how rampant the devastation was. This must have been three or four years after Katrina. The roofs are still... uh, sheared off the houses. And you can see the high water marks on many of the houses. And many houses also had graffitied Xs on them. And um, I was sort of interested. There were just so many of them that I was interested in what they were. And when I researched them, it turned out they're the um, Xs that search parties make when they're going through to um, find survivors or find dead bodies, um, even look for pets, find hazards like uh, gas leaks or live wires. And it occurred to me that if you can read the X's and you can read the marks. Um, they, they tell a story. And so I started to think of all the stories that these X's might tell and the poem sort of spiraled out from there. Chorus of X, the rescuer's mark. X say, search party, say month, say day. X say, live wire, say gas leak, say flood water, say dead dog, dead cat. X say, no dead bodies, say one dead body, say two say, three dead bodies, say, four. X say, kitchen, say, bedroom, say, attic. Say, the family Bible floated next to me five days before the waters carried it off. X say, that dog was a loud ass, mean ass bitch anyway. Say, rain and wind on the roof was like every song I ever heard the slow and angry, the Sunday ones and off tune, pretty ones and ones that wind like a porch door hanging on busted hinges, played all together on harp, on fiddle, tuba, trumpet, on banjo, on every instrument man saw fit to make. Ex say, Lord, you've been flooding us too much. Say, most of the family moved north and west, got tired of humidity and high water, called when they could. Say, if you loot this, you're only stealing from nature, and that bitch always take back what hers. X say, it got easier to die in water than live on land. Say, you miss me buried under plaster and paint treads and wall stud and door and shingle and pictures of my grandbabies. Say, we hear, and you never be rid of us. Say, my worst sins were pride and white lies I recited every morning like mama's daily prayers. X say, lungs of flood in the end took me higher than liquor ever did. Say, black water loved me more than my daddy ever did. Say, pestilence. Say, quarantine. Say, lamb's blood. Say, slave ship. Say, witch trials. Say, the Washita River ran cold and the Cheyenne were still sleeping. Say, the monk doused himself in gasoline. Say, God. Say, man. Say, not all of us are saved. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Ian. Um, I've been asked to remind uh, those of you here and our poetry lovers that Pratt is holding its uh, first uh, poetry contest, and the information about that's on our website, and Baltimore's own Afa Michael Weaver, um, our elder. Um, Man, I hope to grow up to be one day. He's just so absolutely amazing. Uh, We'll be at the Southeast Anchor Library on December 15th for the 17th, I'm sorry, December 17th for... um, um, the annual Christmas extravaganza down there, hosted by Rafael Alvarez, um, a true Baltimore character. Um, two Baltimore characters together. The building may not stand after that. Um, we do have some time for questions for our poets. If anyone has any questions who want to talk about poetry, writing, they're also teachers and of both adults and younger people. So, um, yes, please. And I think we're just going to have the please. And go ahead. Um, my favorite writers are Russian writers, specifically Dostoevsky's,
6: um, those from the underground. I've read that novel. i read about six times because there's this existential angst to his writing along with passion. And I'm saying so my probably second favorite book is um, Invisible Man because it's an extension of that um, from a black perspective. I'm saying that to say I have an issue with us black people as poets for me. It seems like we either are doing these raging, angry poems or we do this, this kind of peaceful complexity doesn't seem to be these um, dynamics in between. So my favorite black poet is um, formerly Leroy Jones, Amir Garaka, because I think he's underestimated in his ability to create that existential angst at the same time with that rage and that complexity and that rhythm. So he's really influenced by jazz. And my feeling is that the Russians give me a lot more of that essence of that jazz anxiety and rage than a lot of us by going from one end to the other end. And Amir Baraka is seamless in going through all those dynamics. And I don't know why that is, so
7: I'm raising that question. And I don't know if anybody agrees with me, but that's
6: my own
1: feeling. Is your question about what the authors feel about Baraka or uh, that, that is dynamic? I just
6: raising this. Do, does anybody get a feeling about the same thing I do with it? us going, us as writers, either doing the extreme rage or this peaceful complexity? I don't that's, see the dynamics that's of Baraka who goes seamless through all of those kinds of emotions
5: and, and just moves me even when he's quiet, you know, so. I mean, yeah, you you pointed out two of the great writers in the history of Dostoevsky and, and Barak are two of the great writers in, in history, and I think all the writers that I aspire to be for the reasons that you outline, I think all writers, regardless of race, should aspire to the kind of complexity and angst that you're, that you're talking
6: about. But I'm, question, I'm my question, I guess, is question. Yes, yes. Do, we, do you looking feel for, that same sense that I have that we, as writers, go from that one extreme or that um, that that screaming rage or that peaceful
2: complexity? Derek? I mean, I can only, I can't, I'm not going to speak as a we. I can speak for, for me. But I feel like that there, there is that range of complexity. Um, because I love Barack's work, and I can also catch him in different periods of time in his life because of that that collection of work that he has. So I can get all of that. So and he and he being one man, but he has complexity in all in all his work. But I also like to think the fact about poetry because I read so many different types of books. and the fact that there are conversations that are going on among all of these writers. So I can get the complexity from from I can, I can step into Sonia Sanchez and hear some of like like her complexity, or when she's just like the haiku form. So she can compact all of all of that rage or even all of that that that, uh, that calm complexity into like one small form. And then I can go um, check out I feel so bad. Like Tim Seabels who does persona form. And within the persona form he can take on the persona of another of another poet and another voice, someone you wouldn't even expect. And I can still get whether it's like a larger metaphor or I can get like a particular feeling that maybe he wants to put that mask on. Or step into that persona to kind of make make his point, but I feel like with all these various voices, I can I get all the of complexity that I need. So I mm-hmm. feel like there's you have the extremes you talk about
6: existential angst though that that's that's missing on a lot of for me mm-hmm. and and our work in general, you know that's 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 you know that's what I'm saying that that moves me you know and a modern time you know. And, and Dostoevsky did that before, you know, Sartre and the rest of the people. And we as writers, I don't feel we do enough of that dealing with the ex- existential angst ex that we have. It becomes <coughs> either with rage or peaceful complexity. That's, I mean, I, I'm mm. not. Yeah.
1: Okay. Not, 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 not many of us can equal Dostoevsky. I can tell. Say that, yes, sir. <laughs>
4: I grew up in a house with both my parents from the Nation of Islam so um, I grew up listening to Malcolm X and, and Elijah speeches and all that so I'm, I'm very 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 much aware of how uh, we are modern slaves in the way that we have to survive by working for someone else um, or perish or end up in prison or end up any number of things that we think are worse than slavery. So we sort of accept this, this thing that we have to do, or we accept that we are consumers and we have to buy brand name things, and so that we become enslaved to uh, a culture that doesn't even necessarily uh, accept us. So um, I'll say, it in a lot of ways, yeah. And to go back to your question, I think there are many authors. Uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, for one, who does capture that existential angst and who is complex enough to be angry and um, peaceful and runs the gamut of human emotion, and uh, there are many authors that I know in common. Common whose work does that, and you may not know them because they haven't I, been around guess for I'm, fifty. Years. I'm saying I'm guessing contemporary writers. I, I guess certainly Claudia Rankin is one. I, I, I'm, I'm
6: you you know all her work am yeah, a, a, a poetry person. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Yes, ma'am.
6: That's,
1: that's a good yes, ma'am. Your question. I have a question. Um, I write for um,
7: children, but it's based on history. Um, is writing for children using rhyming words, is that one of the hardest kind of writing that you can do for children and... Made in the history of what we were growing up, like Harlem, um, Dunbar, um, Dr. Seuss, you know these different characters that we came up on um, the nursery rhymes and stuff like that. I made <coughs> into my own, my own words. Um, the, like um, the Baltimore City Fair. All the things that, came, that I came up as a child, but I put it in rhyming words. Is that one of the hardest you can question reading the information? Children books are the hardest. Mark, you know, I have plenty of rejection letters, but um, is how do you feel about? 'Cause not too many people be children. They, how I, get on that
5: level, that level. I think for I think writing for children is harder than rhyming. So, some of my um, poems are about sort of growing up and sort of my adolescence, and I had started writing them before I started teaching. And when I started teaching, I realized that some of my poems didn't sound like kids, and the the speakers didn't think like. Children think so. I think having to put yourself back at that age of being five, being ten, and being fifteen is one of the hardest things to do because I don't really remember, you know, what that psychological, what that space, mental space was like, what that psychological space was like. So, yeah, I think writing for children is, is very because if you want them; they have to understand, and it's hard to know what they will understand, and especially with history when you drop references that they haven't learned yet, or they don't know about. You have to build their understanding as you're, you're building the story. So I imagine that would be really difficult. I
2: used to be a children's librarian. And then after I also work in a bookstore. We have a children's section. And um, what I know is that I watch like, children when they buy books, especially some of the poetry books. There's a really great book. Uh, it's like Hip Hop Speaks to Children. It's the one Nick Giovanni edited. So it has a mixture of, of, of like old, older poets, contemporary poets, um, and then like several songs from different like temporary rappers that has a CD, um, and I, I like I like the fact that all these poems can like hit these children at various levels. I mean because you got kids now that you know they could they could, they could uh, talk about they could rhyme Super Bass by Nicki Minaj like easily like it's the alphabet they know it it's it's simple but that's, but I like the fact that I also hear kids when they read the books and they go well, this who wrote this this doesn't sound like me. Or what, what are they talking about? They're, they're talking, they're saying all this wild stuff, but like it doesn't. It like you were saying, Ian sounds a grown up
5: wrote this book. Like, kids have their authentication stamp on it. Like, come on, oh, that's not, that's not working for me. But um, I think it is hard.
2: I tried to write a, a, a children's book as a project in a class by um, Professor Tony Medina. We had to write children's books. That was that was hard to try to go to go back and and take on like that persona. Here go back to your age. Some people that might be hard. They may not have had good um, you know mm-hmm. childhood. So but I still think it's that's like a really great like mark to be and to write. If you can do it. You know, do
1: mm-hmm. it. Yeah, and we're fortunate enough to have Professor Medina here as well if you wanted to yep. if you wanted to speak to him about writing for children as well. He's really wonderful. Yes ma'am
7: always been great. In the past year, I've actually focused myself on trying to put everything together and to create, you know, something that says it's me in a book, that form. Um, my story, I've been requested to create that manuscript, you know, which is a great feeling, but I'm the type of person who as much as my writing has always been consistently about love, this wonderful thing, you know, regardless of how it feels. Now my brain is all over the place. I'm like, I'm having political moments. I'm having, you know, love moments. I'm having all these moments. How do you keep yourself focused, you know, when you're being asked to, okay, this is what you do, what is in the manuscript? How do you keep focused on that one project rather than having 20 million brainstorms, you know what I mean? Yes, that's the face I have every day.
3: And and they want
7: this manuscript to be um, narrowly focused? Pretty much because, um, I'm going to say yes, because my whole, my trademark is that whole love experience, that black love experience, so that's how people know me, or recognize this got to be my you know what I mean? So, but um, my brain is (laughs) on so many other places, now that that's been put in my face, it's just like, okay, I know this is what I've read about, but now I'm feeling a whole bunch of other things. How do I keep that focus? Well... I mean, I have two thoughts.
3: Um, one is you may, it may take you longer to get that manuscript done, but you shouldn't try to push aside the other things that you're trying to, to, to get out. Um, have some different folders and put things in the folders yeah. that's where they belong, right? But um, even maybe taking it in a slightly different direction, um, poems are not, are often about more than one thing. So that political poem may be saying something about who you love and how you see them being mistreated socially or civically, right? Um, You know, whatever other things that you feel are unconnected to, your trademark or your signature kind of style, may actually be, I mean, they're all your work, so how can they not be connected? Um, So you might find that, that weaving a little of that other stuff in, having thinking about how you structure the book in terms of sections and narrative arcs and emotional arcs would allow you to, to make something that would be recognizable to those who come to you looking for certain things and then toss a little surprise in there for them. So don't necessarily think they have to go apart.
1: Okay. Um, Tony, I know you had a question. And then I'll get to you. Mr. Medina? Professor. Um, since you got all you gave was a great
7: poetry reading, i like to ask you a question about your poetry. You have all new titles. And your titles are very interesting. Can you speak about the titles of your new books? Okay. With the
2: tea. I said it earlier, it's just it's like a metaphor for, for like growth and just how wisdom teeth, you know, when, once they start coming in, you know, that you have you have that that pain, and in a sense, that's how life is with growth. You're going to have some things that's inevitable pain, and there's going to be some inevitable movement. And then in some cases within your life, in order to like to give it to, to get, get get away from that discomfort, or that pain, sometimes you have to move things from your life that are painful. In the metaphor of like, you got to get those wisdom teeth pulled, or else you're going to be dealing with a lot. And so I mean, wisdom, wisdom teeth is also just about adjustments, too. Like, you got to hurt, too, though. Wisdom, too, something. you have to adjust the way you chew. Just like in life, something gets added to to your life and your circumstance, you have to adjust the way you do stuff. So that's just kind of like, for me, wisdom teeth, is also the whole thing on wisdom. Is wisdom comes out of experience, sometimes it's not so pleasant, sometimes it's not so painful, and you have to remove stuff uh, or add stuff to gain that wisdom.
3: The new black, I mean, it's a phrase that we all know from kind of fashion. Um, Pink is the new black this year. And then, you know, two years later, orange will be the new black, or red will be the new black. Um, That thing that you keep coming back to somehow takes a different form, and yet is that fundamental um, sort of thing at the same time. Um, The title of my book is The New Black, and it's... It's a gesture towards that idea that I was talking about earlier about the extent to which your understanding of blackness or of race um, is connected to when you enter the stream of history. That it lo- the same stream looks different depending on where you sort of come in, and um, that uh, a little bit there's a little bit in there of the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, Black
7: is the new black, <laughs> in a sense.
5: <laughs> That's all I'll say. I had a different title up until I sent this to the, um, to the contest. But I, I realized it was um, and it was taken from a quote from Toni Morrison from Beloved in that very poetic section where babies baby is being born in the, um, in the swamp. It was, uh, leave our bodies behind. I think the full quote was, we are all trying to leave our bodies behind because of the subject matter in the book is, is at times so heavy, I felt like the title was also too heavy. And I was sort of looking for a line from the book that would um, not underplay the heaviness, but would also speak to some of the other themes in the book. And it, to me, the, one of the dominant threads in, um, in the collection was uh, a boy growing into, into or coming, coming of age, or maturing. And I thought the title. Book to that in, in the line
4: that I kept. Uh, black Peculiar uh, came from the title poem, and I was interested in, in referencing a lot of things at once because Peculiar Institution does reference slavery, and contemporarily it's still strange a strange experience being black. Um, so that's pretty much it.
1: Yes, ma'am, you had a question.
5: sorry what's the second part i still don't feel like a poet (laughs) i don't know when that'll happen but um kaveh khan was really helpful for me um in ways that sort of speak to this gentleman's question about um sort of what is a black poem or what you know what is the african what's the status of the black poetic tradition in the contemporary moment and being at Cave Canem and seeing the broad range of aesthetics or people who are writing in very different and broad ways. And it, it made me realize that uh, a black poem can be whatever you want it to be. Because on, on some level, everyone in the group has uh, the common experience of the African-American experience. And I, I realize that that experience can go off in a myriad different ways to try and, and narrow that down. Um, was the only thing that we we sort of can't do. it was the only thing to
3: that Um as someone like, uh, who, who goes back to Reggie's day in Kate Khanam, <laughs> um, it's hard for me to think about it's hard for me to think about what Kate Kanam has meant for my poetry because it kind of my time in Kate time is almost um, the same as my time writing seriously, so I, I, I have a hard time extracting it. I would just say that um, that it makes a real difference to be writing in a community where there are people that you know you can go to for trustworthy feedback, not just the, hey, because your mom will do that, and that's great. Um, sometimes you, you're, mom, I need you to do that. Um, but um, sometimes you need someone who knows poetry to tell you that line is really not working and, um, and do it from a space where they believe that you can make that line work so it's not that negative criticism either. You know. So that's, um, that's just one of the things that Cafe Khan has done um, for me and also, um, by extension, putting me in a, a space where I have a sense the wide range of resources that are available, both within it and um, beyond it. Um, when did I, As far as the second question, I mean, I was always encouraged, um, I'll attribute this to, to Lucille Clifton, who was one of my um, poetry teachers, um, but she's not the only one. It, I had written a poem, and I was a poet. That's that's what she told me. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> if you have written a poem, you are a poet. Claim it. Make it yours.
7: Have, That's wonderful. I felt
4: like a poet for a long time, but I think it was more in secret. And when I I graduated, I got my MFA, and then I went to Caldecott the following year. So that was my transition to sort of being a public poet, because I was the person just sort of writing everything to, to myself, and I had like a zillion that I didn't show anybody. So it was like, Cave was a push to share it. And that's what it has meant for me. And it's it's been such a positive uh, community and such an encouraging community um, that it does this for so many
1: people. Um, Derek, I want to ask, because I know all of you teach or have taught, um, and I want to ask a question which often comes up, is that can you teach Po- can, can you teach poetry, or kid, or what do you do when you go into a classroom and say, "Okay"? Because I know Derek, you work with younger people, and we've spoken kids of four or or adults. Okay, we're going to write a poem. I'm going to teach you how to write a poem. Can you do that, or is that even possible, or what do you do in the classroom? Okay, I just real
2: quick, Comic um, Con. great because um, up when I start with DC, DC, I say the word, like I'm. I'm introduced to other poets and stuff and that's why I started hearing about comic Khan. I didn't know that much about it. And even my idea of what black poetry was of who to read, what to read is kinda of limited. Then I went to copy Khan and was like coming back with a whole huge uh book list of stuff. You yeah, did read that book, you gotta read this and that I connect to that person, I connect to this person and just getting all that backstory and extra conversations. And so um secondly um, I was like, you talking about calling your mom? Yeah. And um, so I, I called myself a writer as a little kid before I was a poet. I was writing stories about like mice fighting goblins, and monsters, and stuff. And so I draw pictures of look at this, and she was like, "Oh, that's great, baby. That's funny. You Keep doing it." And she sent me to little workshops and stuff. It's like keep going, keep going. That was always her thing. And um, so having that, having the space where you meet up with someone, they go, "Okay, that's good." Now, do you, want, do you want some more information on that? Said, yeah, and then that's when we got down to like the, you know, the bone, the gristle, the poems, and then, you know, there were times I got my, my feelings carefully uh, squeezed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, kind of like, you know, kind of like the coach being like, okay, you know, that was good. Get up there and use it, use the hammer. So, um, but for teaching, I always tell my students, um, and I taught middle school, elementary school, and now I'm dealing with high school for the first time. And I tell them, I can't, I, can't I, don't, I don't teach you how to write poetry. I said, you already have, the, you, you are, what's the saying? Everybody born a poet for the society that takes us from, take, takes that art from us and it's our job to get it back. So I said, you already have it. And so my goal is to try to keep you cultivating the poetry that you already have and say it the way you, that you, that you want to say it and here's some resources.
1: To, uh, to get
4: this. Go I, I haven't taught poetry as much as I've taught like, art or um, literature, but I think you sort of help people access what they already have uh, in a way that um, pushes them to communicate differently rather than in a way that they have heard before. And like Derek was saying, you give them the resources to do so by giving them other works to read or by giving them um, uh, forms to try and, and just feeling like they can play with language and, and not have it be so intimidating. I think that's a big step. So people don't feel like it has to rhyme or it has to be, you know, sound like Shakespeare in order for it to be a poem, but to relate it to their own personal experience. Okay.
1: Yeah, I don't, because I've been. Sort of given what? Oh, yes, 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 ma'am.
2: Said, you look said, Rita Dove said, um, I used to I would write little kid. I was just writing for, for me. I was just writing for me and having, and having fun with it. And um, Rita Dove the same as I got older. I was like, well, you know, is anybody paying attention? I read, read those mics, I read those other stuff. I'm still writing for me, but there's still something I want to be said. But I want to people out there who, who's listening. Rita does said, your audience is fine. So keep doing, what you, keep doing what you're doing with your thing. Your intent, what you want to do, and you want the new generation of artists to take stuff seriously. I, I, I gotta give it to Rita Duff. She She's right. People find
3: they, will, they, will, they, will find you. you will find me. Um, I started writing poetry as an adult, like in college, um, and there's a shameful story about that that I won't tell <laughs> for sake of time. But um, I, I was a story writer when I was a kid and was writing stories as long as I can remember. Um, but that issue of audience, if you are speaking with an intended audience in mind, whatever that audience is, um, I agree. I think you, you give them what you want, what you want, to, what you want out there. And they'll find it. They'll come to it. Um, You can think about where you place stuff, where you um, present open mics or readings of various sorts, um, what kinds of um, magazines or journals you might want to publish in, that kind of thing, to put it in their way, you might say. But um, if you've got an audience of your peers in mind, you're going to speak to the things that you have in common with them. And sometimes that has to do with a history that they may not know they have, but that is theirs. So, you know, bring that, bring that.
5: I think you'll sometimes be surprised by who responds to your poetry. I read at a community college north of Philadelphia, and this young Ukrainian man who was born in Ukraine but is, you know, going to college in America now, came up to me and was, told me that he saw a lot of his own experience in my poems. I've never been to the Ukraine. Like I, like, I don't know how that that happened, but I think it was something about feeling caught between two cultures and caught between two worlds. So some, sometimes if you just write for yourself, you know, and try and be engaged with the world you know, write for yourself, but be engaged with the world, read widely, you'll be surprised by what connections you make, and, and um, I'm sort of always humbled by the power of art to, to make those connections.
1: And when did you start writing? Um, or do you even I mean, I remember?
5: Isn't it, it seems common for adolescents to write stories or, or write poems, I remember writing poems as a kid, but... Um, I teach in an all-boys school, and it, it seems also common for boys to maybe stop reading around fifth grade and then hmm. start reading hmm. again in their twenties. Yeah, um, <laughs> yes, yes,
1: yes. So, we work in the library; think, we know that. <laughs> yes.
5: I think I went through that. I think I stopped. Uh, I stopped sort of reading and writing mm-hmm.
7: for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well,
4: Kadesha, I don't know. If you want to. Um, I also- Ship was the of COVID. that they got blown
7: up
4: in Yemen, and um, after that, I started writing a lot more, sort of process what was going on with some of the people that I knew. And um, in terms of audience, I think what everybody said—you have to write for you, um, and also be engaged with the world. But it's, i think it's a beautiful thing to reach across generations. I've had like a World War II that come up to me crying, and, uh, and a room full of people had um, sorority women in their 70s tell me that they like what I'm to You don't know if they're going to say, hey, grandbaby, read this. You don't know what effect your poetry is going to have and how it's going to reach out. So um, I think while keeping your audience in mind what you going to say in mind, the basic thing is to write what comes to you you feel more
1: I think that's, uh, yeah, okay, I think that that's. I'm getting the sign that, 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 that that's our time, but a, and a beautiful way to end. Um, thank you so much, uh, Khadija, Ian, Evie, and Derek. Uh, we do have books for sale. The poets will be here to speak with you, sign them. And thank you all very, very much for coming. This has been wonderful. Thank you.